Just Environmental Law, debating environmental law and justice for everyone. Brought to you by Peel UK in partnership with PlanetPod. Hello and welcome to this episode of Just Environmental Law, the public interest environmental law podcast. Peel is a student-run not-for-profit organisation which convenes an annual conference to provide access to important environmental law and justice debates and to inspire lawyers and others to take up public interest environmental work. Instead of a conference this year, Peel has gone virtual and developed a series of podcasts covering the subjects and featuring some of the speakers who are due to appear. This podcast is a joint venture between Peel and Planet Pod and co-hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, and by Rob Clark from the Peel Committee. Rob is taking an environmental law master's at UCL while practicing tax law at McFarland's, where he chairs the firm's environmental committee. Rob, welcome. Great to have you co-hosting today. Hi, thanks, Amanda. And a big thank you to Planet Pod for helping us uh, make this podcast um, a reality. Our pleasure. Today, we consider what public interest environmental law really means, how lawyers could contribute to their public interests through their legal practices and working lives, and what motivates people to get involved. To discuss this and other issues, I'm delighted to welcome our guests. Paul Powsland is a barrister with Ely Place Chambers and a passionate advocate of wild law. Alongside his day-to-day legal practice, Paul has defended tree protesters in Sheffield and is the founder of Lawyers for Nature, an organisation which seeks to empower people to use the law to protect the natural world. Paul is also a supporter of Lawyers for Extinction Rebellion and was involved in their Declaration of Rebellion in 2019. Paul, welcome to the Just Environmental Law podcast and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It should be a hopefully interesting discussion. We hope so. Our second guest, Rosa Winter, is a senior lawyer at Friends of the Earth, where her work is focused on climate change. Rosa leads on litigation opportunities to increase government ambition, action and accountability in the face of the climate crisis and supports Friends of the Earth's campaigning activity in these areas. Prior to joining Friends of the Earth, Rosa worked in public litigation for the UK government's legal department and in private practice in New Zealand. Rosa, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks, it's great to be here. So we have a really stellar lineup of guests and a co-host and without more ado, I think we should kick straight off into this conversation. So Paul, maybe I could start with you. Could you outline for everybody who may not be aware what public interest environmental law is and how does it differ from other aspects of legal practice? Um, To me, it's uh, anyone who is using the law to protect and defend the environment and nature. Um, and I think, I, I guess, the sort of the public interest element is included to um, differentiate it from environmental law in general, because a lot of members of the public and maybe even law students might think that environmental lawyers act to protect the environment. But actually, in the vast majority of cases, especially in London, a lot of those people are actually actively helping to destroy the environment. Um, If you Google environmental law barristers, for instance, one of the top search results that comes up is landmark chambers. And almost every time I've been out defending nature in the courts, it's someone from landmark who's been against me actively trying to destroy it or acting in favour of those destroying it. So to me, the the public interest element, I guess, means that you're you're doing it for the good. Um, I, I actually tend to... I prefer the term sort of wild law or wild law lawyers. Um, I think it's slightly less, um, I don't know, it's slightly more evocative, it's it's more evocative than public interest environmental law, I think. But I think the concept is the same. I love the idea of wild lawyers. It conjures up all sorts of images in my head. But but, but Rob, maybe we should ask you, because obviously that's what Peel 
is doing. I mean, that's the whole purpose of this um, student-led movement is to look at these areas of, of, of interest in environmental law, public interest in environmental law. What does it mean to you and your fellow committee members? Well, I think I really agree with Paul. It's important for, for Peel and for our annual conference that we are promoting work that protects the environment um, and is a force for good. And it's not just a forum to talk about uh, the latest environmental law developments for the profession. It, it should have a, a strong element of activism and um, working working in the interest of nature. Um, I was, I'm tempted to ask uh, Paul as a follow-up whether you think the sort of wider environmental law community can be an ally and a force for good or is there is there just always some antagonism there? Yeah good question. Um, my natural uh, rebelliousness makes me want to kind of poke them a little bit and find ways to antagonize them but actually I recognize and this is maybe following on from my XR work that that's not the best thing to do and actually instead of shaming and antagonizing people maybe we can actually try and co-opt them and try and lead them over to, to the right side. Um, as another example of the, the, the need for peel as opposed to or public interest in environmental law as opposed to just environmental law in general I went along to a fracking workshop uh, talk about law and fracking uh, at uh, UKLA, so the UK Environmental Law Association, and I genuinely assumed it would be a talk on how to oppose fracking. And actually, there were three members of the panel who were related to the fracking industry, um, including a lawyer that acts for frackers and the head of the UK fracking in industrial body. And there was one sort of token person from, I think, Friends of the Earth, actually. Um, but I was like, what on earth are they doing, you know? Um, and I actually asked a very antagonistic question, uh, effectively accusing the um, lawyer who was acting for frackers of kind of taking blood money, um, which really annoyed her. Um, uh, and actually probably wasn't the best thing for me to do. Um, and yeah, I'm, I've actually been thinking even the last few weeks about ways of how we, um, how we communicate to those that aren't doing environmental law for the good. And because ultimately as well if you think about it if we try and just train up lots of students to do just um, public interest environmental law from the start we're going to be waiting quite a long time for them to become senior and be able to do this work mm. um, but actually if we can kind of just get some of these people who are already doing environmental law to give a little bit of their time to doing work for the public good and work for the environment then that would be a I think a massive change. You've hit on a really really interesting um conundrum there haven't you but so often environmental law is about the actual business of the law of the environment which as you say is not necessarily in what many of us would see to be the public interest so it may not be against things that we would consider to be damaging to our environment and probably possibly comes from more of a health and safety route or you know very often is about ensuring that large potential polluters are within the environmental guidelines and therefore perhaps some of us would consider getting away with stuff that we wouldn't approve of. Um, but it's trying to get those two sides of the argument to come together. And obviously, um, you know, there are ways of doing that. Rosa, immediately I think about your career and how you moved from a formal governmental type of practice into what we can, you know, now all know and love as a, as a pressure group, Friends of the Earth, and, and a campaigning organisation with quite a, a powerful and global reputation for holding people to account. So, so you've made that transition personally from perhaps one side of the argument to another. How has that felt for you? And would you concur with some of the things that, that, that Paul's been saying about, you know, there is this dichotomy between the environmental law and actually practising for the benefit of the environment? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think lawyers try and do the best for their clients. So if your client is a developer or a polluter, you're trying to get the best result for them within the bounds of the law. Um, if you're a campaigner, you're trying to do the best for the environment within the bounds of the law and probably also on the side trying to make the law 
better for the environment, which is perhaps where there's less interest on the commercial side. Um, I've worked for yeah in private practice for developers and um, corporate entities, and it's often interesting because there's just perhaps not such a conversation around protecting the environment, or at least there wasn't in the past. I think there is increasingly so, particularly um, around corporate social responsibility, CSR. I think I've got that acronym right. Um, <laughs> where there's more awareness around um, there needing to be pro- a proactive approach to that sort of thing by companies. Um, and I'd say also in my work with government, that it's often not um, an activist campaigning mindset it's a sort of protectionist perhaps if that's the right word um and I found working within those organizations that perhaps I was the outlier but it wasn't impossible to break through and have conversations and raise points around climate impacts or environmental considerations that wouldn't necessarily be there otherwise um and I think both of those different types of experience in public um in my public work and also in my private practice work, have really informed my work for Friends of the Earth because I understand how lawyers and corporates and governments think um, and what their approach to a legal problem might be, which you wouldn't necessarily have if you'd only been campaigning or um, sort of a legal activist. And that makes perhaps I kind of am able to temper our approach a little bit um, and bring in a point of view or at least an understanding of a different point of view. So it's not really so black and white, is it? I mean, I think it's like with all of these aspects and, and a lot of the discussions that, that that we would have with our colleagues and in our workplaces and, and whether they're in law firms or, or elsewhere would be about how we reconcile the different pools, you know, the needs of the environment, the needs of the climate against the needs of the economy or the needs of our, our own in our own personal lives to, to make a living. But I think there is a place for the kind of activism that you've been talking about, Paul, and, and you know, your experience at Lawyers for XR is probably, you know, case in point, and that, that's an organisation that pulled together expertise from lawyers to really try and to make a very strong kind of campaign point, didn't it? Yeah, I was actually going to say about the, I think we're missing a key element of the discussion here um, in relation to um, public interest environmental law and motivations, and that is really the corrupting influence of money um, and how much that has influenced a lot of the barristers' chambers and big city solicitors' firms. Um, the fact is, is that the, the money that is available to those who are out to destroy nature and the environment is exponentially higher um, than those who wish to defend it. And it's amazing. There are organisations like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace and Client Earth who are acting for, um, for the earth and for nature. But their spending ability is, is, is minuscule compared with those who have hundreds of billions, if not trillions of pounds at stake in pursuing a course of action that would lead to um, climate catastrophe and ecological catastrophe. And I think this may be something that that may keep coming up uh, throughout this conversation, um, both in terms of people's motivations, but also how people who want to come into the profession, how they're going to um, how they're going to live and survive and, and, and be remunerated for their work. And it's something I don't know the answer to necessarily, but I think it's something we need to talk about. I think that's a really interesting point, Paul, because it's not really, um, it's difficult to weigh in the balance when you're a law student or even, you know, partway through your career and you want to move into public interest environmental law. The remuneration and career prospects are very different for environmental lawyers to public interest environmental lawyers. And I fear that that 
um, dissuades a lot of people from doing it and um, it does a disservice to the environmental movement, I think. Um, I've always felt that, uh, to put it simplistically, bad guys get paid so much more than the good good people. But I guess you could argue that that isn't the issue and point here, is it? I mean, I think that many people choose to follow careers because that's not only where their intellectual interest lies, but where their passion lies. And, you know, it's a defining feature of the not-for-profit sector in the UK, particularly, that it is not spectacularly well paid, um, but it's full of incredibly bright people who are passionate about making the world a better place. But is that a fair trade-off? Is it a fair trade-off to say that if you want to do something that's meaningful and has purpose and has potential positive impact, you by definition should be earning significantly less than somebody who's perhaps defending a polluting um, petrochemical company? I mean, and how important is money anyway? I would ask you. Is it a motivator? I think it just. I think it just um, precludes people from from access to that area of the workforce. It requires, like, I know Friends of the Earth, for example, but a lot of charities rely on a huge amount of volunteer um, work, and a lot of people, like Paul, do this in their pro bono time, which means they have to be sustained by another career, which means they're giving up their free time. Um, and it, it sort of leads to a very sort of privileged and often white representation um, because that's the demographic that is able to give their time freely or take lesser pay. I think that's a big concern. Rob, you've got some personal experience because you are transitioning in some of your intellectual interests from being purely in the kind of tax practice into to an environmental understanding, which is why you're sitting a master's. What prompted you to, to, to um, study for a master's in environmental law rather than just continue purely doing the day job in tax? Yeah, um, that's an interesting question for me. Um, and I think I agree with um, some of the comments made about the disparity of resources between um, commercial or corporate firms and um, some public interest organisations. And I think you see that as a law student. I was a law student um, as an undergraduate when uh, firms come round and offer presentations and dinners and explanations of their of their practices to um, to attract law students to apply. And obviously there, there are a lot of law students that want to become solicitors and competition for places and firms are keen to get the best talent. Um, so I think it's easy at that stage of your uh, career to be blinded to, to some of the options. And I, I really like practicing at my firm um, and I, re I really like my specialism, but um, I did just develop this interest in environmental law, particularly from the public interest perspective. And I'm, I'm lucky that I've been able to, to do that alongside my, um, my fee-earning work um, by, through studying at, at UCL. Um, and luckily for me, that works. But I think it is another example of um, having to balance two, um, two competing interests. They don't, don't come together that much within the, within the firm in terms of fee-earning work. Uh, what is a, a, a contrast to that is um, some positive organisational change um, in terms of the firm's own sustainability. And I think that's something the Legal Sustainability Alliance helps with a lot. And in the time I've been there and working on these issues, we've been able to really change our approach to um, the firm's carbon footprint and sustainable procurement and that kind of thing. So I think um, I'm optimistic that there are some potential, there is some potential for positive organisational change within these firms. And a follow-up question for Paul Lanrosa on, on the idea of money as a motivator. I just wonder if you have any hope that as sustainability and environmental issues become more mainstream in the public interest, um, partly as a result of campaigning and partly just opinion seems to be shifting, I wonder if you think that 
the social license for big businesses to operate and continue to attract customers and business will change so that in order to be profitable, they have to be more aware of these of, of some of their environmental impacts and react accordingly. And if, you, if you're hopeful that that will trickle through to um, corporate legal practice and the, some of the pressures and motivations will change, or if you think actually more cynicism is warranted and um, really you can't put that much faith in money and corporate motivation. Yeah, this is the interesting point, I think, about how you bring people over to this to this side of the law and how, how you stop uh, major law firms and barristers chambers um, collaborating with those or, or at least reduce their collaboration with those who are destroying the environment and, and nature. Um, and it's balancing that trying to speak positively, but also with a sense of morality and, and shame, because actually that's all that re- that's all. That's that's one of the main things that um, wild lawyers, public environmental lawyers um, have on their side. They don't have the monetary resources. They do, I would argue, have um, the moral high ground. And actually, one of the things that Lawyers for XR was trying to do was to shine that light back into law firms to say, well, actually, yeah, legally, you can take oil companies' money, but we are now at the stage of things where that is blood money. You know, you you are taking money of people who are making that money out of the deaths of people often in the third world and in the future. And that, that's that simple. And you can keep doing that, but we can also stand outside your offices and throw fake, fake bun around and say, actually, you're responsible for this. Um, and I think a lot of lawyers reacted very tetchily to the Lawyers for XR action outside Slaughter in May a few months ago, actually, because it's, uh, it sort of breaks a bit of a, an omerta in the profession where you're not supposed to talk about money or the morality of the people that these city law firms and big barristers are acting for. And I think actually we need to really just trash that norm. And actually we need to stand up and start saying, you're getting money for this. I think that's morally wrong. Most people think that's morally wrong. You can keep doing it, but I can also keep pointing out it's morally wrong. One of the things I want to do, um, but I need to work out if it's definitely okay with the barcode of practice, um, is to start doing these kind of projects outside barristers chambers, which would be socially very, I think it would be seen as a betrayal by many in the profession because we're supposed to keep silent and not mention not mention the ways in which many in my profession are earning 10, 20, 30 times the national average salary and where that money is coming from. And actually a lot of the time that money is coming from the destruction of nature and the destruction of the atmosphere and our global commons. And I think it's, I'm not saying that if we start pointing out people will magically change, but I do think it will start um, acting as a, as a factor in the, to be weighed up that you can no longer just take this money and no one will ever mention it. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, but it's, it's a difficult one. And I, I know people will react very, very tetchily to it. Do, do, you think, um, do you think students who might be listening and um, people that care about this issue, can they go into a big um, organisation and be a force, force for good or... Do you think really they should be saying no to the job? I guess that's quite a dilemma for people looking at looking at jobs now. Yeah, it's an age-old conundrum, isn't it? Do you, do you go from the outside? Do you try and change things from the inside? I mean, a lot of the time it's going to change you. And I'd argue that people at the lower end of things probably don't have, um, don't have enough influence in a firm to properly be able to change things. You're the I, advocate, though. You sort of need those people to come into the firms and make their way up to change change the firms yeah. from the inside they're just going to I mean I think that 
it's really difficult. And what you were saying before reminds me of like this Venn diagram picture that we were showing on the first day of Laws 101 back when, which had, um, you know, the circles, um, legal ethics and morality, and, you know, we do discussion around how they uh, overlapped or didn't or shouldn't or could. Um, I think it's really difficult because you risk isolating um, people if you if you say you can't act for X, Y, Z or you shouldn't be because that's morally wrong because it's always, it's never that black and white. And whilst um, we've obviously chosen who we want to act for, Paul, <laughs> um, uh, that's not the answer for everybody and not everybody has that luxury to, to choose not to take those jobs if that's where, you know, if that's what they need to, to um, put food on their table or support their families or um, whatever it is. I think, coming back to your original question, though, Rob, there, there are ways, I think it looks to me from the outside, like corporate BSR um, is really increasing in law firms and in, and in companies. And um, although you don't have a huge amount of, you, you have no sway as a junior, if every single trainee interview or trainee applicant interviewing for their traineeship at a firm asked what are your sustainability policies at the firm and the way that they used to ask for your pro bono policies, which meant that all um, top American law firms had to implement a pro bono quota. Um, I think there is power in that. So it's not hopeless, I suppose, ever the optimist. Yeah, I think there is power. And obviously, you know, the voice of young people coming in to an organisation are really important. And, and it picks up on the point you made, Rob, isn't it, that all firms, you know, whether they're commercial practices or barristers chambers, want to attract the best, the best talent, the best, most able young people to join them. And and this is an issue that Gen Z and other young people really care about. This is something that they're passionate about and they're prepared to take to the streets about. So, so I think that there is hope for those young people um, coming into those organisations, but but I suppose this the, this whole conversation raises raises another issue: is that you know should you know should lawyers be impartial? I mean, how right is it for you to bring your personal interests and personal beliefs and views into the workplace, or is it your duty to be an entirely impartial partial um, uh, practitioner on behalf of your client? And then I guess added to that is that that where you choose to work is. Um, to some extent, a personal choice. Um, and your point, Paul, that, you know, we're not talking about lawyers who are earning just a little bit more than the average wage. We're talking about people who are earning 20, 30, 40 times the average wage. And maybe there's an issue here about, um, you know, we need to perhaps look at what the world can sustain in terms of resources, both financial and, and, and physical, and encourage people to make decisions that support that as well, you know, so we're talking about that, you know, we're talking about the Earth's resources in the most general sense, aren't we, in terms of the climate and the planet, but are we also saying that it's right for some people to expect to earn that enormous amount of money where other people will not? So in terms of that impartiality, where do you stand on, on the idea that you, you shouldn't bring your personal beliefs to work? Because I think, Paul, you probably have very significantly over your career, both in the work that you've done and also in founding things like, you know, Lawyers for Nature. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's usually the argument that's raised against me. And I have to say, um, I find this whole idea of lawyers cloaking themselves in this, um, their wonderful upholders, impartial upholders of this wonderful, beautiful legal system um, to be absolutely mostly rubbish. Because ultimately, <laughs> well, you know, it, that, that, that would work if they took cases regardless of the amount they were being paid. Isn't it just, it just so happens that all these high powered lawyers in major chambers in London are forced to accept 25,000 pounds for two days work to uphold this beautiful impartial legal system to impose fracking on local communities who don't want it. Oh, 
woe is them. You know, I, 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 it, it's just not true. And I think it's actually, um, it, it ignores the reality of the situation, which is that the, the, the top lawyers in London now will only take your work if you pay them obscene amounts of money. And the people paying those obscene amounts of money are generally those who are looting and destroying the earth. That's, it's, it's a basic thing. And the, the idea that they're, some, that they're somehow impartial is just, just doesn't marry up with the practicality. Because, because the, the, the one, I, I'm actually not allowed to, under the cab rank rule apparently, to refuse work from people who are, um, who I, whose morals I disagree with. So technically, if an oil company wanted me to act for them, I'd have to. The only, the only way you're allowed to uh, really refuse work is on the basis of how much they'll pay you. What a sad indictment of our profession. Right. You, you, you can't you can't refuse to act on the basis of morality, but you can refuse on the basis of your greed. Just let that sink in for a moment. You can't refuse to act on the basis of your morality, but you can refuse to act on the basis of your greed. Now, looked at objectively, do you think future generations will see that as some kind of high and mighty thing? I don't think so. I don't think it's a thing to be particularly proud of. I don't it's a think it's a damning thing. statement, Paul. I think, isn't it? That that, yeah. that comment, if, if if that is actually the case, my understanding was that cab rank was the cab rank, and that you couldn't you couldn't refuse, regardless. You know, you have to accept what comes along. Uh, you know, regardless of who the client is, and you can't just turn it down for the for the fee. But that's a fairly frightening you, you, thought. You, you, you can't turn down for the client. But you can for the fee. So you, you set your fee at whatever you want it to be. I mean, that, that's why people often get around the cab rank rule. So they don't want to do a case, and they'll just set a high fee. Um, but yeah, no, you, you, a lawyer can, a barrister can say what they want to earn. And, and, and half the time they just make up telephone book figures. You know, the, the barrister who I was against in the Sheffield Tree case was on £25,000 for two days work. £25,000 for two days work. It's outrageous. It is outrageous. <laughs> and, and, it is outrageous. And, and, and more than that, you know, we, we go back to that statement. Like what, what kind of profession are we where you can't? You can't turn down a case because of the morality of it or because they're actively destroying the earth and assisting what is, I think, objectively the greatest crime in the history of humanity. For there can be no greater crime than destroying the very um, foundations of our civilization and indeed our, the ability of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people to survive. Climate, the climate catastrophe and the ecological catastrophe is the great, I would say, the greatest crime. And you can't turn down work because that would advance that. So what can you do? Okay, here we are. We have a highly intelligent, articulate group of guests on this podcast. What are the options? What are the choices? What can we do? I mean, we can take radical action like lawyers for exile have or have been until COVID shut down. Or we can, you know, uh, take the fee and grind our teeth quietly behind closed doors. Or we can try and change organisations from within. But we're all aware that the clock is ticking and that, you know, 2020 to 2030 is the decade of action and if we haven't got the climate sorted by 2030 we're in serious trouble um, so what can you do what can young lawyers who are thinking of entering the profession or people who are within the profession who want to transition into something different within the profession what can they do what's the agenda for change and for action Rosie you've, you've taken very dramatic personal steps because you've moved from a corporate environment into into a campaigning organization so that's obviously one route to, to solving this issue yeah, and I think it's wider than just what you do as a lawyer because, you you know, it's, it's, it's where you work and what work you do, but you can also do pro bono work on the side, you can volunteer. Um, but beyond that, you can have, in a more simple sense, it's the way you live your life and the way your, um, the people around you live their life. So it's the conversations that you have with them, um, engaging them, educating them, 
um, and and the ripple effects from from all of those actions as well, which I think is maybe a little bit, um, you know, if you're stuck in a corporate firm, um, then there are other things that you can do as well. Yeah, just as Rob was saying, you try and change the firm within from within, and you encourage better sustainability practices, and you drill down on flying and you know excess carbon footprint. Um, Paul, what about the law itself? Is that an area for change? I mean, you talk about wild law. Do we need to actually change law and the practice of law and 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 the the essence of the law as opposed to just barristers and lawyers' behaviour around it? I mean, de- definitely. Um, it's a question of how we do that because it's it's not necessarily easy to do that. I think actually we need to take a step back um, when asking people what they want to do. And I think the first step is really, and I'm sorry for bringing some hippie stuff into this. No, I'm not, not sorry at all, actually. Um, but it's, um, to, to bring a slight hippie thing into it, um, we, I would say the first thing you need to do is genuinely fall in love with nature and vow within yourself to protect it. And then the rest flows from that. And what, what, that flo- what flows from that will depend on your situation, right? And all of us have gifts to bring. All of us are in different places. And so trying to say a one size fits all um, approach for everyone isn't going to work because, yeah, we're, we're all in different situations. But that, that, that is at the core of it. And actually, if, 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 I, if I could do one thing with all of these lawyers who I've so far <laughs> been very uh, keen to criticise, it would be actually to, to make them fall in love with nature. Because if actually, if I could get, a QC at one of these top sets to fall in love with nature and just give you a small amount of their effort in the world to protecting it. It would be far better than anything I could ever do, probably. You know, they would be right at the heart of it. Without... Does nature need better protection itself? I mean, are we talking about Earth's jurisprudence here? Are we talking about the, the legal legal practice to 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 allow us to protect nature in a more proactive way? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm an advocate for the rights of nature. Um, but I also recognise that in a practical sense, we're probably not going to get a Rights of Nature Act 2025 in the UK. Um, I, I just don't think that's going to be very likely because our parliament's not going to give rights to trees and rivers anytime soon. Can we just explain the concept of rights of nature for, um, for listeners and how that can be a, um, a powerful legal tool? Yeah, effectively, it's granting... Um, well, it's, it's both making nature a legal person in the same way as a, a human person or a company or a charity, um, any other person before the law would be. So they'd, they'd, ha- they'd be a legal person in their own right. Um, and secondly, then giving them rights, um, the, the value of rights they could enforce. Um, there are some really standout cases. I mean, there's already a case in appeal in the UK with the River Froome who have been, you know, appealing to have the rights of the River Froome itself. Um, and in fact, there's a really good little film on the Bar Council website all about the rights of nature. Um, and I think that the, you know, it, so it's happening and it's happening in other parts of the world. It's happening a lot in places like New Zealand. It came out of the Bolivian Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth. So there is a groundswell of organisations and people and countries who are committed to this. So, so maybe that is one of those 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 things in your toolkit one of those parts of the campaign that we should be focusing on as well as empowering our lawyers to 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 you know fall in love with nature and to fight for nature itself i mean but, i don't you know we could hope that our, our government might see sense yes but i also want i also want to encourage people as to the nature of a right like what do we actually mean by a right now in our society because our society has been re- without revolution for so long effectively we have always we always almost exactly Collide, um, we, almost, we could confuse rights entirely with legal rights. 
Um, but actually, a right really is just um, a legal rule which has the power to enforce it effectively. So, for instance, you, you would say in America, when they gave their Declaration of Rights back in the late 18th century, in legal terms, that was completely outrageous. It was it was illegal. It was high treason against the UK king. But effectively, because they had the, they had the, the power, but legal, actual uh, physical force to enforce their rights, they became rights. And we see that throughout history is that rights change all the time. Uh, I'm not actually advocating violent revolution um, uh, for nature in this country, but I am advocating, I suppose, a form of um, peaceful, peaceful revolution in the sense that if ordinary people start to treat nature as if it has rights and are willing to do what it takes to uphold those rights, they're not legal rights and they can be overridden by the law and by power, but it's very hard to do it in some ways. And actually the Froome example is really interesting because um, they tried to get bylaws to get rights to the River Froome, which were rejected by government. I think, as you say, they might be appealing that. But actually a few weeks ago, a developer started building a house on the side of River Froome and hundreds of local people um, uh, started going against that. Now, legally, there may not be much they can actually do about this building, but actually if thousands of local people say, no, you're not doing this, and we will do whatever it takes peacefully to oppose you, it's actually very hard for the law to then force itself, to, 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 to force the, um, uh, the abrogation of the river's rights on local people. And this is what we saw in Sheffield. Um, this is why I love the Sheffield example so much, because actually it's the prime case example. Sheffield, the people of Sheffield lost almost every single legal case they had. There was a JR about the tree felling. So I should probably introduce the Sheffield tree felling maybe before I go off on it. Is that, would that help? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it, it, many people have heard of it. It's just that it was the, one of the biggest um, sort of activism, nature activism events of the last decade, I suppose. Um, and the local council wanted to fell 17,500 trees and local people rose up against it. Um, now, legally, they lost almost every case because the council had the legal right under the Highways Act to do the work. Um, and actually, not only did they have the legal right, they also got various incredibly strong injunctions to prevent local people protesting. Um, but local people just came out and many of them stood day after day after day under trees um, to prevent them being felled. And eventually, despite losing almost every single legal case, uh, the protesters won. And that was in complete and utter contravention of the law. Not only was the law completely on the council side, but the High Court repeatedly granted injunctions saying, if you stand under these trees, you, we will put you in jail for contempt. And the full force of the law was put behind the council to chop down those trees. And yet the council couldn't do it. And by extension, the law couldn't do it. The law found out where its limit was. And despite the order of Mr Justice Males, those trees still survive. And the seemingly limit of the law is if you have hundreds, possibly thousands of ordinary people from an area willing to go to jail and suffer whatever consequence the law is willing to visit on them to peacefully stop the destruction of nature, the law finds itself in a bind. Hmm. I it think is, there's, um, oh, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Paul. No, as I say, because, because ultimately it seems, I don't want to say never, but you know, it seems in this country there is a strong unwillingness to jail peaceful environmental protesters for the reason it would make them martyrs and bring out more people 
And also ordinary people think it would be wrong because actually maybe we shouldn't jail a 60 year old person for standing under a tree outside our house. Um, and therefore, what does the law do? What does the law do? And that that's and this is what I'm fascinated about. It's this intersection between law, power, rights, politics. And for so long that the law itself has been in favour of those destroying nature. And this goes back to the money thing we've said earlier. But when you add that element of ordinary people willing to peacefully stand up for nature, it's a wild card that completely changes the mix. For, for me, this, um, thank you. For, and for, for me, this brings up a really important question that was on our list um, for later as well. It's, it's about the line between legal work for the public interest and for the interest of the environment and campaigning that's non-legal. And with the Sheffield example, um, do you get to a point if the law is wrong where you don't need, you maybe don't need legal representation or you maybe don't need a clever legal strategy, you need more conventional non-legal campaigning and people people under the trees. Um, and I wonder uh, to Rosa as well, if that's um, a difficult question within Friends of the Earth and how you, um, how you pick your strategy and when you think a legal intervention will be the most powerful tool versus um, some other kind of pressure. Yeah, that's definitely at the forefront of my work. <laughs> um, and I think from Friends of the Earth's experience, it, it would be that often both go hand in hand. So the Heathrow litigation um, being a prime example in February, the Court of Appeal, as you probably know, um, Friends of the Earth won a climate case against to stop the Heathrow expansion. Um, and that was a groundbreaking win and is, is actually going to the Supreme Court later this year. But that started as a, as a grassroots Friends of the Earth local group opposition to any Heathrow expansion, which has been going on for years. And so there's been that campaigning um, around the issue for, for a long period of time. And when the airport's national, national policy statement was released by the government um, in 2018, I think, um, Friends of the Earth decided to, that, that that was an opportune moment to take the legal intervention um, alongside that sort of advocacy campaigning grassroots work. Um, but then those were taken forward together. So the litigation was filed, but the campaigning worked alongside and really supported it. And outside the Court of Appeal in February, when the decision was handed down, there was a huge number of supporters. Um, there was a big rally and, and a lot of support and a lot of energy and it got a lot of media attention and it was even commented on by the court. So I think um, you're right, sometimes it's one or the other, but, but most often it's both together that, that makes for a really successful um, win. I think that's it, isn't it? I mean, maybe that's that sums it up and this is a good place to sort of bring this discussion to a close is that actually it's about the public and what's in the public's interest and in the environment's interest and the role of law in helping bring those things together. So we need the advocates, we need the lawyers, we need the petitioners, we need those who know their way around the system, but we also need the public to be empowered and emboldened to stand up and do what's right for the environment. And they need to be able to do that alongside legal practitioners. So it's, it's, it's not the one or the other, is it? It's that kind of bringing those together as a, as a, as a really coherent whole. Um, and that's probably where most people can get involved and engaged because they may not be able to take that personal decision to, to work in this field permanently or, or even at all, but they can take actions in their, in their personal lives. And maybe it's beyond us as well. I mean, maybe the biggest change to our behaviours around flying, whether it's Heathrow or Gatwick, will not be petitions about the airports. It'll actually be because people won't want to get on aeroplanes again.
and you know the decline in flights as a result of the pandemic and the significant number of of of, of non-flights taken that's maybe enough of a behavior change for us to say actually it's something it's taken something much bigger than than a petition to get us to change behaviors that we know are, are, are polluting and difficult and damaging to the planet so you know maybe this is beyond all of us who knows but right. i think that the, you know we need to think about that we need to think about bringing these things together is what can we all do now now we've seen what a pause for the planet looks like in terms of environmental benefit how can we take that into future legal campaigns and practices yeah, I, I would actually like to give um, one more example, actually, and partially because I was there today, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, I uh, got called to help out uh, on a tree campaign in North London. It's called the Happy Man Tree. It's a single London plane tree that a developer wants to chop down. Um, and um, I might be helping to draft a judicial review claim for them. But that's actually, I think, the less interesting part of the story, because the other thing I'm doing is, is just advising them on their activism. Um, they want they they want lawyers to tell them actually if the police come and say I've got to move off the pavement what's the law around that am I breaking the law being up in this treehouse um, what what do I do if someone says it? you know all this kind of stuff and they they desperately need lawyers loads of act, local activists all around the country desperately need lawyers to give them these answers and that's something that law students are really equipped to do it doesn't actually take a deep amount of knowledge to do that um, and I think it's an easy way for students and younger lawyers to, to get involved and really make a difference and for me as it's, it's obviously amazing what high level litigation that friends of the earth and plan b and, and client earth are doing it's, it's all amazing but sometimes it can feel too too high up people think oh i can't get involved in that and that's why i think there's a magic in in activism by local people supported by lawyers because it's something that is easy to get involved in and really makes a difference I think that's a perfect place to end. Um, and, you know, this is a subject we could discuss for hours, I'm sure, um, but our podcast time is up. Um, thank you so much to, to all of you, um, to Rob Clark, um, to, to Paul Palston and to Rosa Winter for being part of this Just Environmental Law podcast. And thank you to Peel for putting it together. And you can find out more about Peel by following them on Twitter at Peel UK or visiting their website. You can catch this podcast and others on wild law um, and environmental issues at theplanetpod.com. And we hope that you'll subscribe to the Peel podcast moving forward. So thank, thank you all three of you for, for being part of today and for a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Just Environmental Law, the podcast that debates environmental law and justice for everyone. Brought to you by Peel UK and PlanetPod. Follow Peel on Twitter at Peel UK or visit our website www.peel.org.uk. Thanks for listening.